We'll be in 2 Peter chapter 2. We spent quite a bit of time on verse 1. Today we're going to set our attention to verse 2 and verse 3 in this first service. But we'll read verse 1 as well just to kind of get the context of what's going on here. But if, if you remember what has happened is that Peter at the end of chapter 1 has declared the truth of the Word of God, declared that the words inspired uh, in this book were carried along by the Holy Spirit, that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit to pin the pages of Scripture, and that no uh, prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, but it is men who are moved along as they were spoke to by the, by the Spirit of God to record these sacred pages. The Word of God is true. The Word of God is infallible. It is our anchor. It is our ultimate source of truth. And then he goes into chapter 2 and it says, but on the contrast, there's false prophets, there's false teachers, and they are not holding to the Word of God, but they are using words and distorting them to their own desires and their own carnal nature. And, and we talked about last week that what makes this battle so unique is that so many times in the church, we face battles outside the walls of the church. We go outside and we are hit in the face by the world. We see the attack of the enemy uh, outside the walls of the church. It doesn't take long to go out into the world and see that we are hated and that we're the minority and that people absolutely hate the message that we stand for. We expect that, don't we? But there's something different when the battle that is being spoken of here is found within the walls of the church. This battle is not a battle that we rage and wage war against outside the walls, but these false teachers and these false prophets and their false agenda come and they, they find root inside the church. So not only do we have enemies outside the church walls, we have them inside the church walls professing to be Christians, claiming to be Christians. But they secretly introduced these destructive heresies. And that's what we spoke about for several services. But today we're going to go a little farther with this. And we're going to talk about two of their characteristics that mark a false teacher. It's sensuality and it's greed. You're going to find that they're not spirit-filled because they're not true Christians, so they continue to rely and they continue to draw back on their sinful, carnal nature. And the two that we're going to talk about in this first service is their sensuality and their greed. So let's read the first three verses here. We'll pray, and then we will begin to look at the characteristics of some of these false teachers today. It says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is is not asleep. Let's pray today. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. And Lord, we thank you that we can open the pages of your word and have no doubt that they are perfect and they are infallible and they are from you. They are God-breathed. They are truth. And Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, thank you that we can fall back to your word. We can, we can hold to your word in the middle of a chaotic world, in the middle of this sinful world. Lord, in the middle of this dark world, your word is the light. It's the lamp until our feet. It is 
our guidance in this dark world until we see the true morning star in heaven, which is you. God, help me to preach these words today. And Lord, let us understand the seriousness of this matter. Let us understand the seriousness of, the, of this nature of this attack within the walls of the church. And let it move us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. See, here's the deal that we need to know about these false teachers. They are not Christians. That's the first thing we need to know. Because if we go back, and my favorite chapter in all the whole Bible is Romans chapter 8. From, from verse 1 to the very end, it is packed with so much theological truth and, and so much depth, and it covers so much. But the Bible is very clear that those who are of the flesh are not Christians. They are still in Adam. And those who are in Christ, they are the children that have the Spirit of God indwelling in them. And the Bible tells us that those who live according to the flesh are hostile to God. So those who are not born again by the Spirit, they're hostile to God. They're enemies of God. Whether they claim it or not, whether they say it or not, the Bible is all truth, and the Bible says that those who, are, uh, those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That's important. Because these false teachers, they're not Christians. They're not born again. They do not have the Spirit of the living God indwelling in them. So the motives that they have and the desires that they have are not spirit. They're not for the things of the Spirit, but for the things of the flesh. And that comes out of them as much as they try to hide it, it will come out of them. And one of the things that we're going to talk about first is one of the carnal things that comes out of their evil desires is sensuality. It's, it's an abandonment of holiness and righteousness, but it is for sexual perversion. It is for sexual things. It is to live in their carnal means with no restraint. Let me continue to read this in Romans chapter 8. If I could, in, in verse 5, I started there. It says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And that's what these false teachers do. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. And here's the kicker. We, we claim... So many people will claim that, yes, you may be a sinful person, you may be an unregenerate person, but there's something inside of you in your unregenerate heart that can come and do something that's pleasing to God. I can come and I can repent and I can come out of this, this depravity that I have and I can repent because there's enough good in me to do that. I can, I can submit to the things of God except for we've got a problem because Romans 8 tells us something different. In verse 7 it says, I just read it. Now we're going to read it in context. But the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Can't do it. There's nothing in your unregenerate soul and state that can do anything that is pleasing to God. It can't subject itself to the law of God. You are completely hopeless in that unregenerate state. And in that unregenerate state, you are fully desiring the flesh, the carnal things, the lusts, the desires that your sinful soul absolutely is drawn to by nature. And even though these false teachers 
We'll stand behind the pulpit. We'll stand in front of congregations and they'll claim it all over social media. If you look deep in their souls, it's carnal. They're not indwelled by the Spirit of God. They are hostile to God and judgment is being brought upon them. He goes down also in chapter 8 to say that for those who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the children of God. You want to know if you're a child of God, the Spirit of God dwells in you. The Spirit of God is a seal. The Spirit of God is a promise guaranteeing your, you your internal redemption. These people are not. They're hostile to God. They hate God. Isn't that amazing that the God that they hate is the God they claim to stand up and proclaim week after week after week? But there's the catch. They don't proclaim the true Christ. They don't proclaim the true gospel because they hate the true gospel. That's why they got to twist it. That's why they got to distort it. That's why they got to do something to attract carnal people. Because do you know if you preach a carnal message, do you know what kind of people you'll draw? Carnal people. You want to know why churches have thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people there? Listen to their message. I guarantee you it's probably not going to be a message on repentance. And it's probably not going to be a a, a preaching on holiness and righteousness and self-denial. But what is it going to appeal to? The carnal desires of the unregenerate soul. Hey, do you want money? God will bless you with money. Come to our church. That's what we're going to preach. See, it drives on the carnal nature. Oh, you want to come and be a Christian? Yeah, you'll have blessings. God will give you that promotion. You'll have the best life you've ever lived. Come. We're not speaking on the things of the Spirit. We're speaking to the carnal nature and your desires. You see this quite often, don't you? That's that's what the Bible says is going to happen. You see, the carnal man wants to hear the carnal things. And the carnal things are money and power and success and not self-denial in righteousness, and holiness, and repentance, and conviction. And the false teachers, because they're not true Christians, they live this life, but they also proclaim this life. But is that what the Christian is supposed to do? Is the Christian supposed to live a life of unrestrained sensuality? No. Just the opposite. You see, the message that these people proclaim is this, that God loves you however you are, And you don't have to change. That you can just come and everybody's good. Come to church, say a prayer, give a little bit. God loves you, it's okay. You don't have to change. It doesn't have to be a desire for these things of the Spirit and the holiness of God. None of that matters because God loves you. And you know what happens? Here's the sad state, and you'll see this. If you use carnal means to attract people, you're going to attract carnal people. And if you start to use carnal means to get people into the church, do you know what you have to continue to use? Carnal means. Because if they are not of the Spirit, then they're going to get bored really quickly with the things that are of God. So you speak the things that are not truly of God, and you entertain people. You've got to keep ramping up the elevation of the entertainment because carnal people want more carnal things. They get satisfied, and you've got to up the ante. And we see that across churches today. But let's see what the Bible says about sensuality. Let's see if there's a a call to not live like you did before salvation. We we have some verses here on your page. One of them I didn't list, but we all know quite, I would say quite well, is in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, where he says that if you're in Christ, you're a new creature. You're a new creation. The old has passed away. 
You're a new creature in Christ. You're not in Adam, you're in Christ. Your heart is made new. And you know what this, the reality of this is? And I want you to think about this. How many people say that they're a Christian and there's no change in their life before their conversion or professing conversion or false conversion, if you will. How many people say, oh, I'm a Christian, but their lives have had no change? Is that a possibility? Can the Spirit of the living God, with His, remember the dynamite power we talked about, that He invades your soul and brings you to life? Can the Spirit of the living God invade a soul, bring it from spiritual life to spiritual death, cause it to be born again, have a heart that is now inclined to love God and to the things of God and the supernatural power of God be at work and alive in that soul and there be no change. That's an impossibility. When God touches a soul and He uses His power to bring you from death to life, there is a change. The old man is gone. But these teachers, they claim, well, you don't have to have a change. God loves you the way you are. Unconditional love. It's one of, the, one of the things that causes people to get tripped up all the time. There has to be repentance. There has to be change. There has to be a difference in your life, in salvation, because it's impossible to get touched by the Master and there be no change. That's an impossibility. Listen to what these verses say in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 through 16. It's on your sheet there if you want to follow along. It says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourself also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, does that call, sound like a call for a continuation of sensuality? No, it doesn't. But these people continue to live lives of sensuality. 1 Peter 4, 1-4 says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time has already passed, is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. You see sensualities in there and a list of many more things. If you're living a true Christian life, those things are in the former, they're in the past, and the people that you used to hang out with, they malign you and they start to bring evil against you because you don't do those things anymore. But these false teachers continue to live in their sensuality. No restraint. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen, some, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. You see the difference? This is what you were, but... You've been justified, you've been sanctified, you've been cleansed. You're not to continue in those things. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, 
that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess your own, his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. You see, the line is clear. These people hate God. They claim they love God. They teach what they consider or they call the truth and the gospel, but they hate God, they distort the message, and they live in sensuality. And this is a, a form of uh, a view that we have mentioned before. We'll mention it again. It's called antinomianism. It's very important to know this. Because antinomianism means anti-law. There's a group of people, and these people hold to it, and they, their whole thing with anti-law or antinomianism is that, that God has delivered us from the law, so therefore we can live like we want. Do whatever you want, because God has set us free. His grace covers it all. So it doesn't matter if you go and live like the world. It doesn't matter if you have a life of holiness. It doesn't matter if you live a life that's trying, of sanctification. None of that matters because you've been covered by grace. That's heresy. That's false. What does it mean that we've been set free from the law? Well, here's the good news, is that the law, the perfection of the law, is what is required to enter heaven. We all have to be perfect, and we all have to be righteous according to the standard of the law. But when Christ came, He lived the perfect life. He fulfilled the perfect righteous requirement of the law on our behalf, those who would believe in Him. So we're set free from the law, meaning we don't have to keep the law perfectly as a merit to enter heaven because Christ has met it for us, and in faith, He places that on us. That's the beauty, that none of us have to be perfect to enter heaven. We don't have to keep the law of God perfectly because here's the deal. If we had to, I'll see you in hell because I'm not going there and neither are you. But God met the perfect, righteous requirement of the law. So we're set free from that requirement, but that doesn't mean we're set free from living a holy life because what does the Bible tell us in John chapter 14, verse 15? If you love me, you'll do what? you'll keep my commandments. You're set free from that being what you have to keep to get to heaven. But if you truly love God and if you've truly been redeemed and you've truly been sanctified and you've truly been born again, then you will love God and your desire will be for holiness and righteousness and sanctification and keeping in obedience with His Word. That's good news that we're set free from the law having, for us having to meet it. But we're still the desire and to grow and to seek the things of righteousness, which is pleasing to him. It goes on a little farther in Luke 6, verse 46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? There's that repetitive, Lord, Lord, why do you call me that? That's an intimate term. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you claim this, this intimate relationship with me and not do what I say? That's because they don't believe they have to. Antinomianism, do what you want, doesn't matter. God loves you. Keep going. And this is the message that the false teachers profess. No repentance. Nothing. No, no living holy. Live like you want because that's how they live. And that's what they profess because they are not regenerate and their hearts are carnal and they're seeking these carnal things. Antinomianism is false. But we see the, alt, the ultimate opposite of that is found in legalism. So if you want to find the two extremes of, of, of these views, is one is the antinomianism view, which means that you can do whatever you want, God doesn't care. And the other view is that the legalism says you've got to do everything perfect and that's how you enter heaven. 
Not by grace, not by mercy, but by you keeping the things of the law perfectly and righteously. Neither one of those are true. But in the middle of that is the grace of God and the desire to live a life that's pleasing to Him because He's changed us. It says that many will follow their sensuality. Many will follow this. Why would people follow this? Think about that just for a second. We, we have people that, that they, they hey, it's good to go to church. We should go to church. We, listen, yeah, we, God, is, God is real, and we, we, we've been told that we should go to church, and going to church seems like it's an important thing, and so we want to go to church. And if you were really a non-believer, think about this just for a second. If your heart was carnal, wouldn't you go to the place that caters to your carnal nature? Wouldn't you do that? When you want to go to a place that says, listen, come in, sing for, a, sing for two hours, even secular songs. You look on today, you, go to, you can look up churches across America, they're singing secular songs in the name of Christianity in their church. Why? Because they're desiring to bring in people, and they do that by pulling at the heart's nature, which is carnal, and that is how they get these people in, by using carnal means. So you get them in the church. You sing and you, you sing songs that emotionally charge them. You, you sing songs that aren't even Christian songs. And then what do you do when it comes time for the message? What do you say? Well, you don't speak about God. And you don't speak about repentance. But what do you speak about? Things that are only focused on man. Do you want to be a better you? Here's how you do it. Would you like to be a better businessman or woman? Here's how you do it. Here's seven steps to do this. You're the best that you can be. You've, you're so good. And just think some positive things, and God will give you that promotion. And, and listen, God doesn't want you to be in, in this hardship right now, and, and He wants you to be healed, and He wants everything to be perfect all the time, and, and He wants you to be blessed, and He wants you to be rich, and, and you don't have to give up any of the, the worldly stuff to get that. You just come and listen to our message. Who wouldn't want to come to that if you were carnal? That sounds like a great place. I can sit in a church... And not be told the truth of the gospel, not have to change any of my ways, not hear conviction messages, but I can just go and have a great time, be emotionally charged, live like I want. You see, it draws carnal people. Carnal messages and carnal teaching draws carnal people. And then you have carnal people, unregenerate people in a church. That's why they don't know the truth of the Bible. That's how they can be so fooled. That's how they can be so tricked because they don't know the truth of the Bible. Because majority of them that sit in these churches, there's a good chance they're not Christians themselves. How could they be Christians if they've never heard the message of repentance and of truth? It would be very hard. And if there are people in churches like this, they're very, they're very few, and they're getting starved out because the truth of the Bible is not being spoken to them. But you see, this is what draws people to these places. It's carnal means. It's carnal desires. And people love that if they're not of the Spirit. It will draw many people to them. These false teachers proclaim the promise of Christianity, a better life. They, they promise benefits. They promise temporal blessings. And they, they guarantee a, a, an eternal life, and they guarantee an inheritance without regeneration, without holiness, obedience, sanctification, etc. And this is popular. To the pagans, it's popular to the unbelievers because it drives their carnal lusts. And they can still feel good about where they're at with God because they're in a church and it seems to be 
If I'm in a church and hearing this message, it has to be true, so therefore, I'm okay. And the Bible says very clearly here in verse 2, it says, Many will follow their sensuality, and, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. We see this in 2 Timothy 4. We come back to 2 Timothy a lot, but it's so true. Listen to what he says to Timothy. Paul says this as he's writing his last letter. In verse 1, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their, to their own desires. What desires would that be? Carnal, lustful, a non-regenerate heart, hates God, lives in the flesh, and wants nothing to do with God. Their heart's desire is to wrap up their carnal lusts and their desires and wrap it in the, 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 the title of Christianity just so they can sear their conscience a little bit and continue to live like they want. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. That's what's going on across the world today. Remember what Peter said at the ending of chapter 1. This is the prophetic word made true. This is the gospel. This is the infallible word of God. This is inspired by God. But here comes false teachers. Just the opposite. If there's no conviction or teaching or preaching of conviction... If there's no preaching of sin and repentance, then the Holy Spirit's not present in those ministries, in those churches. That's just the bottom line. Because one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to preach and to convict of sin. That's what the Holy Spirit does. In in John chapter 6, it tells us that in verse 8, that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to bring about conviction. So think about that. If there's no conviction, if there's no preaching on conviction, if there's no appeal to holiness and righteousness and godliness, then the Holy Spirit's not at work at that place. Why would the Holy Spirit not be at work in that place? Because these people aren't indwelled by the Holy Spirit because they are in their carnal, lustful, evil, unregenerate heart and desires. It has to be present. If there's no repentance and there's no conviction, then the Holy Spirit is not at work in those places. You see, it's the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, the things of God, or the things of our carnal, fallen nature. That's what's at stake between these two, between the true teachers, the true churches, the false teachers, and the pretend churches. It says as a result of their sensuality, many will follow this, and the way of truth will be maligned. That word can also mean blasphemed because of their actions because of their teaching, because of people following that teaching, the way of the truth is maligned, it's blasphemy, it is. Because remember, they don't want to stick to the truth of the gospel and the Bible because they hate the Bible and they hate the gospel. They're they're bringing in these destructive heresies on purpose because they hate the truth of God. So their teaching is a, a distortion of the truth. And then what happens is what? The world sees these professing Christians... And they see that these professing Christians live no different than them. And then what happens? They say, well, what is that? What kind of gospel is that? What kind of truth is that? You're no different than me. And more, sometimes, even worse. Truth? That these people are sometimes fall harder and get involved in more heinous stuff than the quote-unquote, the visible pagans out in the world. 
And the way of truth is maligned. They claim that I am a representation of the gospel of Christ and then they go distort it by their actions and they go distort it into the world and the way of truth is maligned and blasphemed among the pagans and then the church is set there, the true church is sitting there trying to do damage control, if you will, and say that's not truth. That's not who the true gospel, or what the true gospel is. That's not the true message. But it maligns the truth, it distorts the truth, it blasphemes the truth. And this is what these teachers do. And there was an example that we see this, and he's speaking to the Jews in this case, but in Romans chapter 2, I'm going to show you this really quickly. I don't have this typed out, but I have the reference there. And I want to ask you a question before we read this. If someone did not know you were a Christian, or let's say they did, either way, if they followed you and they watched your life within the last year, would there ever be a time where the message of the gospel, the message of the truth in their eyes would be distorted, would be maligned on behalf of you and your actions and my actions and our behavior? Would they look at you, would they look at me and say, what is that? There's no way that's the truth that you hold to. That's no way that that's the gospel that you profess because you don't live it. And oppositely that, you absolutely sometimes just fully go the opposite way in your actions. Would that be the case? I can answer for me. I'll not tell you that answer, but you answer for yourself. This is what's happening in Romans chapter 2 and verse 17. It says, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge in it of the truth. You therefore who teach, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through the, your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. He's talking to the Jew. He said, I've given you the law. I've given you the commands. You are the people that I bought out of Egypt You've got everything. You've got every advantage. You've got the law. You've got the commands. You've got it all. But you are hypocritical. You profess one thing, but then you do the opposite when no one's watching. You who teach and you say don't do this, you go behind the scene and you do it. People see that. And because of you, the way of the truth has been blasphemed among the Gentiles. They look at you and they see your disregard for the things of God and the name of God has been blasphemed because of your actions. That's what's going on here with these false teachers who profess to be Christians, but their actions are blasphemy against God. The people who follow them and, and go into that way, the way of the gospel and the way of truth is blaspheming and maligned to the world. There's no ambassadorship, but it's an all-out assault on the actual truth of the Bible. It's a serious charge here. That's why destruction is coming upon these people. Their destruction has been marked out from a long time ago. Before the foundation of the world, their destruction was set. This is, they're doing what? Their carnal means and their carnal lusts want to do. But why else would they do that? 
What is another reason? Not only do they not want any change, they want to continue to live in their sensuality, but there's another reason that we see that's so prevalent of the characteristic that is, uh, we see, like I said, this characteristic is pretty obvious, and that's greed. Greed. You look on today and you look at televangelists, one private jet is not enough. They need two. Send them your money. And then guess what? Your prayers will be answered. Isn't that something? You know how many people? We can watch documentaries on this. You can read stories. You know how many people, elderly people, down to their last little bit of money, but wanting a miracle so bad, sending all their life savings so that they could believe in this person and that their family could be healed of a miracle, by a miracle by these people? Send in everything they have and leave them broke, leave them desolate. And guess what? You know what happens? Nothing. Nothing. These people, these false teachers, not only are they driven by their carnal need for sensuality, they're driven by their carnal need for money, for greed. And it comes out in their ministry. They're not doing this to, to help people, to change people. They, they, they may pretend it. They may look on the, on the surface level like they are. But if you got down to the core of their soul, do you know why they're doing all this? Greed. That's a carnal lust. That's a carnal thing that they're doing. They are doing it for greed. The Bible tells us, listen. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. You remember we talked about at the end of the first, the first chapter? The words of God are true. The words of God are infallible compared to what? The false words of the, the false teachers. So their words are not true because they're not found and they're not rooted in the Bible. They're rooted in their own spin of it. They're rooted in their own, own desire for what it is they want it to be or what they want it to say. And they lead people astray with false words. There's no truth in their words as the whole because they're not of the Spirit. They don't understand the things of the Spirit. You know, the Bible tells us that. Do you understand that the Bible tells us that no one can understand the things of the Word, the things of the Spirit, unless they're given that by the Spirit of God itself, Himself? So how can these people who are not born again or not regenerate, how can they truly exegete a Bible verse and speak to you in truth when those things are spoken of by the Spirit of God? It's carnal. It's greed. This is what drives them to do this, and they, they exploit people with false words. We see this prevalent in the name it and claim it gospel, don't we? You may know it as the prosperity gospel. What do you think the prosperity gospel is all about? Prosperity. Why do you think that's so big today? Because people are carnal. The people who teach it are carnal. The people who want to follow it are carnal. They want something that will promise them the carnal lusts and the desires of their heart in the name of Christianity. Just name it, and it's yours. God doesn't want you to be mediocre in life. He wants you to be rich. He wants you to be rich upon rich. It's His desire that every Christian is wealthy. Is that what the Bible tells us? Have you ever noticed that these people who say that God wants everybody to be rich, it's always them who's rich and their congregation struggles along? In 30 years after being in the same church, maybe one day they'll finally have their breakthrough. Have you noticed that? How long do you sit in a place till you realize that's not true? Not happening. I'm more broke because I'm giving it to this clown who promises me wealth. And now it's not coming. You see, they're false words. It's by greed. 
It's their carnal, sinful lust that's driving this. And they promise this to people. They, 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 they teaches on greed and covetousness and the desires of the worldly things. Because why would they teach about God? They hate God. That's why their message has to be towards the people. Now it makes sense, doesn't it? Why do we have all these stories in the Bible where we're the hero? Right? You'll see that the heart of man is always to make us the center of attention until it's born again, until it's regenerate. And then we see that the story is not about us. It's about God. Who's the hero in your Bible? It's God. These people want it to be about them. It's always about them. It's always about you. It's never about God because they hate God. You'll see these messages, they're all the same. Focusing on man, focusing on their lives and their carnal desires. They are driven by temporal worldly pleasures. And that's why their messages are centered around those things. Centered around man, not of God. And this is because the heart is not regenerate. And they're desiring the things that are in their nature. They believe that Jesus is the key to unlocking and blessing them. Not with spiritual gifts, but with material gifts, material things. I saw a sign the other day that really bothered me. Here's what it said. Jesus, your free ticket out of hell. I don't know if that bothers anybody else or not. But that's what we reduced him to. All he is is a free ticket out of hell. That was on a sign here in this community. God, help our souls. He's not a free ticket out of hell in that regard. He's not our ticket to a, quote-unquote, better material life. He's not our ticket to a better promotion. You know what he is? He's the holy and living God of this universe who owes us absolutely nothing. Owes us nothing. You know what we deserve by our nature? Death and wrath. That's what he owes us if we're going to be fair about the whole thing. He's the holy, immortal, sovereign God of this universe who His holiness we can't even comprehend. He is high and He's exalted and He owes us nothing. What have you and I ever brought to Him that He would owe you anything or He would owe me anything? Nothing. But we come to Him and we dress Him up as a genie in a bottle and we say, I'll come to church and I'll pray and you'll give me a new car and you'll give me blessings and you'll heal this person and you'll do this for me and that's what I'm really banking on you to do. Instead of coming to church and falling on our face and saying, we want to worship you, the holy and living true God of this universe. You don't owe me anything. If you took everything away from me, if you made me live on the streets for the rest of my life and you inflicted me with disease until I die, you are still holy, you are still good, and I will still worship and love you. Can you say that? Can I say that? If you took everything you have away today, would you still love him? If you took all away of your material possessions, would you still love him? Would I still love him? If for this moment on, all you had was health issues that were so painful until the day you die, would you still be able to raise your voice and say, God, you're good and I love you? You take these material things and these promises away from these people, they won't darken the door because they don't love God. You see, Christianity, the focus is not on us. The focus is on Christ. He owes us nothing. And until we can understand that, we can't understand who He is. He owes you nothing. Zero. He owes me nothing. But the fact that He's given us some is more than we deserve. He's not a genie in a bottle. 
He's the holy, perfect God who by His own mercy and His own grace stepped down into His creation and lived a perfect life so that that perfect life could be imputed to those who believe. And then He took your sin and my sin to the cross and He, and he bore it there and He suffered pain and agony on a cross. Why? So He could be the propitiation and the expiation for our sin. He could be our atonement. And then they took his dead body and they they put it in a grave. But he didn't stay there because death can't hold him because he's sinless and perfect. And he rose for our justification. He has ascended and he sits on the right hand of God. He is not a genie in a bottle. He's not a free ticket out of hell. He is the eternal Savior who deserves all glory and all praise. And by his mercy and grace alone. Has he given you the next breath? Has he given you a shirt to wear? Has he given you a home? And has he given you grace and mercy and salvation so that you and I as rebellious, sinful creatures could live in the presence of this glorious God for eternity? That's the message that the church needs to proclaim. That's the message that the church needs to hear. And it's a message of repentance and doing our best to seek after the things of God, not of the material things of this world. There's a difference between the true gospel and the gospel that says God deserves, you deserve, have everything, and it's God's will that you have everything in expanse and in great multiplication of those things. God, help us. This is not the Bible. This is not the truth. But people cling to that. Give me something, God. Give it to me. I want it. Not you. I want the things that I think you can give me. But what does the Bible say? Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21 says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where the thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see? These people are carnal. These teachers are carnal. Their heart is on their true treasure. And it's the things of the world. It's the things that are, brings them temporal blessings and temporal means. Their heart is towards the carnal. So therefore, that's why their focus is on the carnal. Their focus is on them. It's in their improvement of their lives and not on the things of God. They're truly seeking after their own treasure. That's perfect. They are. The Bible's 100% true. Because their treasure's not waiting for them in heaven. Because if it was their treasure, they would focus their attention on their treasure, their living hope, which is being guarded right now for them. 1 Timothy 6 tells us the same thing in verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine conforming to godliness. There you go. You see, what do we talk about the first? They live in sensuality. They don't care about godliness. If someone speaks a different doctrine, he is conceited, understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicion, and constant friction between men of what? Of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a mean of gain. That, That verse says it all. That their minds are still depraved. They're deprived of the truth. They distort the doctrine of the Bible. And why do they do it? Because their hearts are deceitful, their mind is depraved, their heart is depraved, and they think that godliness is a source of gain. 
What kind of gain? Let's continue to read. But godly, godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering with these things, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You've heard that verse before, the love of money. That's the carnal means by which these teachers and these false preachers drive their ministry with. 1 Peter 5 talks about those who have been in charge and entrusted to shepherd the true flock of God, the true leaders of the church. Here's what they're supposed to do. Therefore, I exert the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not with compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. It's not to be driven by greed and money. It's to be driven by the desire to teach the true sheep of God. The Bible says that their judgment is from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. These, these false teachers have been around for a long time. We, we witnessed that in the Old Testament. We've witnessed it in the New Testament. We witness it today. And although they continue to be there and they continue to be present, that doesn't mean that their punishment and their judgment is idle. We'll read about this a little bit tonight, that, that every person that is living on this planet today that is a non-believer, that has not been covered with the grace and mercy of Christ and has not been covered by His imputed righteousness, you're in a terrifying position. Here's why. The Bible says that if you are an unbeliever, that every day you live and you sin, you are storing up wrath against yourself for that day. He's a righteous judge. He's a fair judge. I believe there will be different degrees of punishment in hell. I believe the Bible speaks about those things. But every sin you commit, you're storing up wrath against yourself for that day. I've heard it quoted. I don't remember who said it, but it was quoted before. Uh, and it, it went something like this, that every sinner that is in hell will have wished they would have committed one last sin. Just a little bit of wrath off of them. Just a little bit of mercy shown their way. And these, believe, these teachers, that every word they say, their bank account may be growing, their congregation may be growing, but every sin, storing up wrath against themselves for that final day. And how terrifying is that? Not just to the false teachers, but for the unbeliever who sets in churches today or sets in this world today, that every sin you commit is being piled up so when the righteous judge judges every deed that everyone does, you will be held accountable and you will have perfect, righteous, holy judgment brought about you on that day. And it's immutable for all eternity. That's a terrifying thought, isn't it? Every unbeliever wishes they would have committed one less sin. The judgment on these people is not idle. Those who are false teachers that have died, they are in torment right now, but not the final torment. And those who are still living today, the wrath of God is upon them. The judgment is upon them. They're storing up for themselves wrath until the final day of judgment. It's not idle. It's present as we speak. 
Now we look at one last section of Scripture before we close today. And it goes to Luke chapter 12. It's a story about covetousness. Now on your sheet you will have it scribbled off because 1 and 4 are very close on the, the number pad on my computer. Speaking on greed as we end this sermon. Luke chapter 12. Luke is loaded with parables. On our midweek services, there, there has been a thought that possibly once we get done with the attributes of God and once we get done with some of the, these other thoughts and, and series that we're going through, that we may turn to discussing some of the parables in the Bible and working through them. I don't know. But Luke is stacked with parables. Luke chapter 12 is no different. Tells us a story here. Says this, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me as a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Okay, we, we've got that. We've covered that. We know that these are what these people are driven by. And he says, Be on your guard to avoid every form of it. For not, ever, not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of these possessions. It's not what your life consists of. It's meaningless. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own all that you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Think about that parable. This man didn't have enough room for all of his stuff. And he says, I know what I'll do. I'll build something bigger. I'll build it where I can hold more and then I can get more because my life is in these possessions and in this abundance. And he begins to build this. And what does he say? Never at one time, if you have all the money, all the fame in the world, never at one time in a life is that what your life is possessing of? Is that the true matter of what's going on? It's never the point of it. It's never. It's empty. It's vain. And he starts to build this barn. And he says, but you fool. Don't you know that you're not going to get through building that barn? Because tonight your soul is required of you. Tonight the truth of the matter is going to be laid bare in front of the eyes of God. Not what you have, not in your possessions on this earth, but where your true possession lies. You've heard that. He says it's your soul is going to be required. And what is the verse that we know? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? We know that the rich young ruler couldn't give away and sell his possessions to follow Christ. You see, it's the soul that matters. 
It's the soul that means everything to God, not in the worldly possessions. Because if you look at the apostles and the disciples, they were not rich according to the world standard. Oh, but you want to talk about some of the most rich people in the world. It was the apostles and it was the disciples because they were rich by the spiritual gifts and the blessings of God. And they had an inheritance waiting on them. And if you're a believer, you have that same inheritance waiting on you today. You're equally as rich. Don't get envious of the world. Don't get envious of their, their material things. Don't be driven by those things because those are carnal means. And don't let your heart be driven to those things. But rejoice because the greatest treasure that any human can ever have is waiting in heaven for those who believe. And he goes down a little farther in this verse, in chat, or verse 34. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, these people's hearts are not true, regenerate hearts. And as a result, the carnal, lustful, sinful, evil desires that is in their soul will be on display. They'll sneak in secretly. They'll bring in destructive heresies. And in those things, some of the characteristics we've talked about today will be sensuality and greed because they're living their true nature, and their true nature is not of God. So ask yourself today, where's your treasure? If He took it all away from you today, would you still have all the treasure that you need? Would you still have the greatest treasure that there ever could be? Yes, if you're a Christian, you do. Let us set our eyes today on our treasure in heaven. That is imperishable. That is not going to rust and be destroyed or go away. It's being guarded, and you are as well, if you're a believer, for that day. And do you know why that your treasure could be in heaven? Do you know why you could look forward to that day? Because your heart has been changed by this holy God. When He has caused us to be born again, and in that rebirth, our hearts go from the things that are carnal and the things of this world to the things of God. So let us, like Colossians chapter 3 says, let us set our thoughts and our affections on the things above, not on the things of this earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. And God, we thank you that at the end of all matters, that Lord, that you don't owe us a single thing. And that's what makes grace so amazing. That's what makes your mercy so amazing is that we don't deserve it. We don't deserve anything. God, we don't deserve any good. There's nothing in our unregenerate state that hates you, God, that deserves anything good. But God, you've blessed us with spiritual goodness. You've blessed us with spiritual gifts. God, you've given us the greatest treasure in all the world in eternity with you. And Father, let us Realize that today. Let our hearts be drawn to the things of the Spirit, the things that are of you, God. Let us put our minds there. And Lord, let us know that these, these false teachers and these enemies that arise in the church, God, that they don't have the desires of you in their soul, but they are carnal and worldly. And Lord, let us to be able to realize them and to see them and to stand for truth and to warn those who we may know that are being fooled and, and being deceived by these people. 
And Lord, let it never for one time in our life that our actions would uh, bring a, a, a charge of, uh, of blasphemy against the gospel or uh, uh, a, be a horrible example or an ambassador for you, God. Let us live lives that, that glorify the gospel and show that we love you. God, we're thankful for your truth and your words. And Lord, we thank you that you've changed our hearts to give us a desire for you and the things of heaven where our true treasure sets, being guarded to this very moment, Lord, by you. And you're guarding us as well so that we will be there. Thank you that your words are true. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.